Welcome to the Alan Gray Orbis Foundation online learning community podcast series, where we aim to build our community through learning, sharing, and collaboration. You're listening to another Alan Gray Orbis Foundation podcast, and today's episode is about operational systems in business. It sounds a little boring, but let's explore that in a bit more detail. Today with me in the studio, my two special guests, both entrepreneurs, we've got Carmel and Nikki. Let's start with you, Nikki. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the business that you're in. Okay. I am a young entrepreneur. I have directed and co-founded my own company, of Yogeta Kids. I specialize yoga with special needs children, and I have a huge, vast spectrum of children that I deal with on a daily basis, dealing from age two years old until the ages of 18. That sounds very interesting indeed. And in a completely different industry, we've got Carmel. Tell us about your business. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, we're in the space of taking data and turning it into an operational plan. So I guess for the smart people, that means data mining, data warehousing, and then literally making the data usable for regular folk. Let's explore some of the challenges in running a business like that. Now, one of the things that we're teaching in entrepreneurship is is learning from failure and obviously not making the sorts of mistakes that might cause a business to fail. In entrepreneurship theory, one of the things that causes a business to fail is not being able to deliver consistency, predictability, reliability. And the underlying cause of that is operational systems, I guess, in simple terms, how you run your business. So let's talk about perhaps lessons we've learned along the way and how we've used operational systems or operationalizing the way we work in order to fix problems in the business. Nikki, let's start with you. In, in your business, you're dealing with kids and using yoga as a form of therapy. Let's talk about the operational side of your business. How does it work on a day-to-day basis? Run us through a, a day in the life of Nikki. So a day in the life of Nikki is I wake up in the morning, I do my own yoga um, mantras, I then decide I'll either go to gym, have my own me time, do my admin work, and then I go straight into my private clients, or I have my schools that I deal with on a daily basis. We have large groups of children that I teach. I have private clients, and being on my day-to-day basis, it's a lot of energy, a lot of movement. I'm on the go all the time, and it's, it's very fun and exciting. I truly enjoy what I do and how I teach all my students and young children in teaching them how to become their own selves and dealing with it through movement of yoga. This is now a snapshot of what we call an adolescent business, a developing business that's gone through the teething problems. But go back a little bit, you know, in your early stages, while you were busy establishing the business. Tell us about some of your biggest nightmare days that you can remember where everything just did not go right. It was definitely finding schools, finding clients for me to approach. My biggest challenge is coming across people who look at me as a person my age and they think that I'm not who I am or they take me as I'm this young person and I'm not experienced enough for the role that I play in my company. Or when I approach schools, I get the drop, I give the card or my pamphlets and I get chucked into the bin. It's my worst challenges that have come into place. And it's, it's very daunting when you walk into a school and you're asking for the certain people that you need to speak to and you just get shut down. It is my biggest challenge in getting into schools. It's not an easy topic to also get into and going through the correct channels is also very difficult. Carmel, tell us some of the early nightmares you've had. You're obviously also running an established business, but let's talk about the early days when things didn't go quite so well. Tell us about some of the memorable problems and nightmares that still you know give you those uh, goosebumps when you think about them adam it's going to have to be about processes i think my biggest challenge was facing a legal agreement with a business that is now global and you're a small new entrepreneur i guess 
and you're sitting around a boardroom table with heavyweights. And I will never forget that day. And I will never forget, actually, a senior lawyer in the business contacted me afterwards on, in the client's business. And he said to me, whoever drafted your contract did a very good job, but I would remove the following clause because there's potential risk for you. And he, and he went on to explain that. For me, that's about passing it forward. He had more knowledge than I did, and he shared an insight. Um, but yeah, the legal side of things still gets me flustered. I have a story to share. In one of my previous entrepreneurial lives, I used to run a restaurant, a coffee shop, for my sins. For those of you thinking about opening a coffee shop as one of your entrepreneurial ventures, I've got one word for you, don't. I remember one nightmare day where we had a bunch of about 100 people for a big lunch. And this was a great revenue day for us. We were making a fortune of money. And the people that we were hosting the function for had a big lunch. Uh, it was their year-end function and they had speeches. And after the speeches, we were supposed to serve the meal. Now, those speeches lasted a long time. We were serving some drinks and came time for the meal. And I went into the kitchen. I said, right, guys, it's time to go. And then they started putting the potatoes into the oil. My heart sank. And I suddenly thought, but we're ready to serve now. And there's going to be 45 minutes before the first plate of food arrives on the table. Big operational nightmare. So it's one of those occasions that can cause a business to crumble. Certainly that customer never came back. When we fail to deliver to a customer, um, it usually points to the way we've run the business, to the operational systems that drive the business. Can you share some examples where either what you were delivering was unpredictable or, you know, good one day for one customer, different one day for another customer? Um, how can you guarantee to deliver that same consistency in the products that, or services that you're selling? I think if I can jump in on that one, Adam, it's got to be about consistency. So... You asked a question earlier of Nikki, how does every day start? Every day starts with a plan and the plan's got to be consistent, it's got to be reliable and it's got to be tested. Um, maybe more so in the data space because it's got to be 100% accurate. What's that story? I know we shouldn't use platitudes and uh, if you fail to plan and you plan to fail and it's absolutely true. So, you know, to your restaurant story, if somebody had just done a, a time and motion study or a time and activity study and said, hold on, folks, the potatoes are got to be in now. You could have circumvented that problem. And that's, we have to start every single day like that with a team talk plan. So let me ask Nikki, so your day begins with, I guess, centering yourself before yes, you begin. What was your day like before you started that routine? It was very jumbled. I didn't have a plan. So I would basically wake up, write it on my diary, and then see how I went from there. But if I didn't have my diary, I was completely lost. So in, in most businesses, there's some sort of a rhythm to a day. When I say a day, I don't mean every single operational day. I'm talking about the way we deliver our products and services to our customers. Um, with a plan, things go so much easier. Without a plan, as we've kind of alluded to, things don't really work out so well. But the plan, what is the plan? You know, how do we, how do we arrive at a plan? In, in one case, we've got a business that deals with people. In another case, we've got a business that deals with technology and IT. What is a plan to you? Let's start with you, Nikki. A plan to me is doing my weekly classes, doing the movements on a day-to-day -day basis. If I don't have that plan uh, for the lessons that I am going to take on my classes would be a gym like you standing in a a field running around and children are going to go wild if i don't have a plan the kids are going to go nuts and unfortunately i have had those situations as some of my challenges but as a person who has been practicing as a teacher i found my way in preparing that consistency of making sure all the children are on the right level and are capable of centering themselves and, and listening to their teacher. Um, so in a way, you know, what you're describing sounds like something simple, like a checklist might be, you know, one of the things one needs to, to, to have, you know, on the front page of the diary to get those things ready each morning before you leave home or do these steps before you leave. Yes, and I think it's very important, especially for young 
students or people that are becoming young entrepreneurs and doing their own businesses that it is so important to have that checklist. Without that checklist, you might feel really lost. I found my checklist and I've been on the right track from the day I'd said go with it. And it's something that can be time consuming, but that extra five minutes of your day is so worth doing that checklist. Carmel, tell us what helps plan your day in your in your environment. I mean, you're dealing with high tech. It should be all systemized, but is it different in your world? It should be all systemized. You're quite right. Then there's the human factor. <laughs> so I start my day as a human, writing notes. I literally journal for an hour. Um, I have to set one month goals or one day goals, one week goals, one month goals, three year goals, and then break everything down into bite sized chunks. So in the same applies to systems in a business. What's the end goal? How much data are we wanting to process in a short period of time? What does that look like? How do we put that into incremental steps to make sure that we sort of break it down backwards and then build it forwards to make sure that we can achieve those goals? Systems change constantly. The systems we use today are no longer applicable. I mean, the systems we used 12 years ago are no longer applicable today. That's an interesting thing. Uh, We talk about changing systems. It's bad enough when you have to go through the process of putting a system in place. I mean, people don't really spend time thinking about how the actual business of their business runs. They just want to produce the end product. So producing those systems takes time. Uh, But now we're saying they change over time. So tell us a little bit about why we have to relook at systems again and again. They have to change constantly. I think we need to acknowledge that we live in a very fast-paced world. If you just have a look at what's happening in the social media space, if we have a look at the way people are communicating, it's, it's immediate. I can send any message to you right now with no delay. And the same is true when you are mining information. You have to be able to process it right now. So the systems, the size of the database, the processes that we used 12 years ago cannot handle the volume of information we need today. The same is true for our highways, the same is true for our cellular networks. So business has got to be flexible. Business has got to be, I think, you have to be able to fast forward two years and say, right, what is this going to look like in two years? I better start making the change now because in two years' time, it's too late. So from one perspective, we've got the fact that the world around you changes and therefore it means you need to change your systems. In another environment that doesn't depend so much on tech, Nikki, what does that mean for you? Is looking at your systems necessary in order to maintain uh, or do you constantly look at the way you do things in order to improve? I constantly look at how I can improve myself and how my lessons can improve, how my children can develop from how I teach and teaching techniques change over time, all the time, on a daily basis and I have to make sure that I am developed enough to maintain my consistency and my professionalism. One of the daily or the regular practices you have to go through as a teacher is, is refreshing your knowledge of your expertise. That is 100% correct. Let's take a look at the way we improve systems or the way we improve our operations. Now, in one of the books that should be a, a first read for every entrepreneur, a book called The E-Myth, they talk about using systems to underpin your operation and constantly revisiting those systems by watching the way we do things, trying something new, seeing if it works. If it doesn't work, trying something different. And if it does work, operationalizing or institutionalizing that. Now, in your business, Nikki, I'm assuming you have few employees. And in your business, Carmel, I'm assuming you have more than few employees. How do we go about taking a system and operationalizing it in an environment where, where it's just you and in an environment where there's lots of people? Let's start with you, Nikki. For the amount of people that I deal with on a daily basis, I'm coming to that point where I am expanding at this very moment and looking for people who can work underneath me and finding the correct person is also very difficult. And I want the right people. I don't want someone who knows how to be a yoga instructor but doesn't like children or the opposite way of they enjoy children but they've never learned or had an experience of being in the yoga industry or have been to a yoga studio. So there's a lot of challenges that I will be facing within the next couple of months coming ahead. With me being myself, dealing with 100 children a week 
it's very tiring and I'm going to be honest it is tiring like I get home really late at night I start my days really early and dealing with so many children on a daily basis you need that energy to also uphold yourself so at this very moment I am looking to expand at this very point and I am excited to see where it is going and um, for the people that are going to be coming underneath my brand that is expanding on a daily basis into something from very small to becoming a very big platform. So now you touch on something really interesting there and I want to pick up on that. It's easy enough where, for example, you've got complete oversight over the whole operation. You know, as, as a small business, you know all the systems, all the processes, you understand your values and the way you're trying to position that business in the mind of your customers. You understand very acutely the quality of the product. But the minute you start including more people in your business, you then exponentially increase the number of problems you're going to allow for. So let's talk about how we bring people into the business so that we can still maintain that level of quality and predictability and reliability in terms of the services and systems. From your side, Carmel, you've obviously been through the process of employing people. How does it work for you? That is an incredibly challenging task. Most of my recruiting actually goes on gut first. So I'm not a techie, I'm not a developer, but I own a software business, which tells me that if you have the attitude or the aptitude, you can pretty much achieve anything. Insight, industry knowledge are going to be key. It's about somebody who can fit in with the team and fit in with the business's culture. And I think the upside of a small business is that you can determine the culture upfront. So we are very much high performing. There is no such thing as I can't. My favorite statement is, for heaven's sake, we're working out how to live on Mars. Don't tell me it can't be done. So it can be done. <laughs> it always can be done. Is this something you say to your staff? All day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> so that I guess that means I'm not the easiest person to work with. But if we want to be exceptional, we have to have that attitude. We have to have a can-do attitude. And it's very much about collaboration because no one person has all the answers. And we make most of our big decisions that way. We sit around a table and say, right, what's the end goal or what's the problem? How do we best solve for this? Bearing in mind that we're looking for water on Mars. It can be done. <laughs> one of the theories that Michael Gerber proposes in the e-myth is that one designs the organization as a whole. The biggest, most complete version of this organization, even if you're a one-person show. So you do your organogram and you say, right, this company, if it's to function without me or if this company if it's to function as a fully fledged organization has these departments it's got the ceo it's got the production department it's got the sales department it's got the operations department it's got finance it's got legal and one defines the whole organizational structure and then you put the names of the people doing the jobs me 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 in every single box but what that does is it starts causing you to think about the business as a collection of functions as opposed to the business as you doing everything. And as you refine each function, so you start understanding what goes on in that particular function and you look for a person to do that job. In your struggle now to start expanding and finding people, you mentioned that it's now a matter of finding somebody who's got one skill, so it's either teaching or yoga, and then training them on the other, which is loving to do this job with kids. What do you find you're looking for or what are the challenges that you're finding in looking for that combination of people? The challenges that I'm facing at the moment is finding that correct person who has that niche for loving and caring for children and at the same time that enjoys doing the yoga movements and being in the yoga industry or has been taught how to teach yoga to other people maybe on a children's level or maybe on an adult level and finding that person with both of them together has been pretty tricky and um yeah is it possible to find somebody with 90 percent of the skill and train them on the other 10 percent, or are both are all the skills that we're looking for in, in your particular example is it essential to find all of them in the same person so if i don't find someone with the skill that they have in terms of teaching children how to be a yoga student it would have to be on my part to obviously train them and 
become a teacher underneath me and get the experience that is required prior to becoming a, te- a yoga instructor. So what are we looking for in the employees? Carmel, you mentioned looking for effectively heart and then you train the rest. Nikki, there are some, some proper qualified skills you need and then you're looking for the right kind of person, I guess. We're talking about building culture in this organization, something you mentioned there, Carmel. Let's talk about this concept of culture in the business and the way it affects the product we deliver. As a business owners, we're very particular about making sure this business is you know, delivering a, a product of a certain quality that we are proud of. You can hire people with skills, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do the job the way you want it to. So culture, what is culture in your business and how does that affect the way that people do their jobs? Let's start with you, Carmel. I think culture is absolutely essential because it dictates the way you handle your clients. And if you don't have clients, you don't have a business. So it's absolutely how can I serve you? How can I best add value to your life? And the other thing I say all the time is if we're not adding value, we don't deserve to have you as a client. Yeah. So it's about thinking beyond. We can't work in an environment where we are, this is what we've done for the last two years, so we're going to keep doing it this way. That just doesn't cut it. It's okay, we did it like that for two years because it worked, but the environment has changed, but our clients are getting more data savvy. Therefore, we have to constantly be three steps ahead. So what are we doing? And that for me is a culture. It's a serving, let me delight, let me be better. That's in your mind. How do we get that into the minds of people without you constantly telling them? How do you operationalize that? And that, I guess, is around the recruiting process. That's where it gets challenging. So are you hiring somebody who has a specific skill set? Skill set is critical. What is their attitude around that skill set? Because it's all attitudinal. And I think you have to lead by example. If you're a leader, you have to be prepared to muck in when things are going tough. And you also have to lead by, this is the way we do things here. Yeah. This is how we treat our customers or our clients. This is what we do for them. So culture is probably one of the most difficult things to control uh, as you expand. Let's hear it from Nikki's point of view. How do you define the culture in your company? and How do you plan to get the new people that you employ to carry on that culture? The best way for me to carry on in finding that correct person would be putting more of myself out there in terms of hiring a person and using my techniques and resources available to find those the correct people to come underneath me and continue in building my brand. So, so culture is a very uncontrollable animal if you don't get it right. For those of you starting a small business, the culture of your business starts off as being you. You know, it's your personality reflected in the things that you do. But the more the business goes on, if you're not consciously creating a culture, one will be created for you. It's kind of like your Miranda rights. And the culture will be become the way the people in your organization behave, whether you like it or not. So it's really important to start thinking about if you want to deliver consistency, predictability, reliability, um, what that means in terms of the product and if there's a culture in your organization, how that then translates to the people wanting to do that without you standing over them all the time. Um, Hiring people starts becoming a challenge because we're talking about finding the right people. Yeah, you were just talking about culture and how important that is. And you said when you start your business, your culture is you. I think in terms of maintaining that the culture, the culture that you envision is continued as the business grows and you potentially step away. It's about instilling behaviors, and I'm going to sound like a dictatorial parent now, but I really do think it can work. What behavior in a business is unacceptable? I, a little bit like what behavior within a family unit is unacceptable or a, a behavior on the road is unacceptable. It's just about saying, folks, that's not acceptable. That's not the way we do things here. And if that's the way you operate in this space, then maybe we don't have a good fit. So you don't necessarily need to have the big lashing, thousand letters of warning, million CCMA cases. It's just about acknowledging as a unit, this behavior is not acceptable. It's not how we do it. We don't take shortcuts. We don't disappoint our clients. It's just not what we do. In trying to manage that, you're obviously going to come up against conflict. 
because we're now trying to take people, get them to walk the way we want them to walk in order to deliver this, this product or service the way we want them to do. And we know that not everybody is the same. In fact, we know that everybody is not the same. When you just walk into a bookshop, see how many books are on the shelves, and each person will go in there and find a different one because that's their tastes and preferences. Values drive people, values drive businesses, and our values aren't always the same. So when people are out of line, you know, from an experience point of view, how do you handle it? From an inexperienced point of view, what are you afraid of? It's a frightening thing to do. It's not something that sits comfortably with me. And the older I get, the worse I get at this. When I was younger, I was very clear about what is right and what is wrong, and there will be no deviation. You get older, you get a lot more tolerant. You realize that people have external and internal factors that influence their decision-making or drive their values. And you start making decisions with a little more heart. And I'm not sure that's a great idea. I think you have to make business decisions with head. You have to have very clear boundaries around what's acceptable and what's not. And I think if you enforce those boundaries clearly enough that there's no wriggle room, people will soon enough understand that this is not a good fit or I can be very comfortable here if I'm compliant within the client delivery boundaries. So we're talking about a lot of conceptual things. Mm. Break that down for somebody who's never been in this world before. So I'm 16 years old, not quite sure what you're talking about. Let's have some practical examples. Okay. I had a real live example last week. I have a, a global client who is a relatively new client. They are absolute sticklers for detail on the data front, which I thought would delight me. I was sorely mistaken. Two of my long, well, one particular long-standing employee made a fundamental mistake in a data dump that was imported or a data file that was imported. The net effect is that the incorrect report was sent out. Well, correct report, incorrect data. So that file had to be dumped. So Friday, I was called in to the client's office and got a proper lynching for the inaccuracy, which I think they're well within their means. So I have spent the last two days thinking about how to handle this because my initial reaction was absolute fury. It's a rookie error. We don't make rookie errors. We've been doing this for too long. And then I had to take two days to unpack to say, right, what is going on in this person's life right now? If I do something like happens in a corporate, give this person a final letter of warning, what are the consequences? Am I going to potentially lose somebody who has been a good employee? Am I going to completely demotivate somebody? Or am I going to give them the shock that goes, oh my gosh, she's serious, we can't do this again. And that really is what it's about. It's about looking at when the situation presents itself, when people make mistakes, and we all do. How do you react? And once you've chosen your path of reaction, understand what the consequences are going to be from the other person's perspective. How will they react? Because different personalities will handle it differently. Sure. We started off talking about operations and delivering consistency. We're ending up talking about how vital a role people play in that whole process. Now we're talking about managing people because I guess that's one of the most, the most challenging things in any organization. Nikki, what are your fears as a young entrepreneur about to start employing people? What are your fears about your role now as a leader and maybe potentially dealing with a conflict that's going to come with some of these people you're about to employ? I think the challenges that I have coming ahead in terms of the conflict, I'm not a confrontational person and I don't do well with it. I, I'm one of those soft-hearted inside people that prefer to talk it out instead of shouting at the person or becoming like an arrogant, like high-headed person who is going to shout at their, you know, at their employees and say, listen, you need to, this is what you can't do in a very arrogant way. But how I could take that situation is I could speak to the person who I encounter with and speak to them on a personal and softer level and explain to them what they have done wrong and speak about it and instead of giving like a warning but also being firm at the same time which I'm actually used to doing and being a firm person I also find that being firm, I also have to play fair, but in the correct boundaries. I think you speak the voice of a lot of people that have never gone through 
the road of employing and dealing with people. I mean, I guess the longer you've done this, the easier it is. But being firm doesn't necessarily imply being aggressive. You know, one, one can be very assertive without being aggressive. Being confrontational doesn't mean that you have to be ugly about it. If you want your business to run the way you want to as a leader, I mean, you have to be fairly firm and direct about what you are and what you are not prepared to let go. We've had certain instances in, in, in our own company where, yeah, we've made the same sort of mistakes that you've spoken about, Carmel. And it's the way you deal with the mistake that makes all the difference in the world. Remember, you've got the same person who still has to work for you. And you don't want to demoralize or demotivate them. You want them to see this thing as a mistake the same way as you've done, but you still want them to continue you know, working for you. Very hard when you've got employees and emotions involved. From your point of view, Carmel, what are some of your key kind of lessons that you would like young entrepreneurs to learn about beginning to deal with people, but being assertive in the way you want them to do the job properly? Don't work with people, work with plants. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I think the... I think the most critical thing you can do as a young entrepreneur is decide very clearly what your outcomes are. So what is your objective? What do you want to achieve? Who do you need along the way with you? But set out a roadmap so that when somebody joins you, they know the journey. You're able to say, we're going to do this, we're going to that. Step two is this, step three is that. Once we've worked this out, we're going to move to step four. If you tell people what is coming and what they're expected to do, you will be more easily guide them along the path. So I think from recruiting new people, just understand yourself what your objectives are. So that implies very clearly understanding the job and the role that the new person is doing and literally walking them through a very well-organized job function. And what the end goal of the business is. So make an assumption that if you're bringing on a person, it's because there's more to achieve than you can do on your own. So you have a goal that supersedes what you can do in your personal capacity. So these are my goals. These are your goals, and together we're going to achieve the following in the following time frame. So interesting. You, you say from the outset you bring a new person in, but it's not just you and your job. It's you and us together and how we're going to get this business to where it's going. Absolutely. No man is an island. You can't do it alone. You cannot do it alone. And to bring the people along with you, they need to understand why they're there, how vital the role is that they fill. So now we're stepping onto the realm of leadership and vision. I don't think enough young entrepreneurs are aware of the importance of leadership in business or, or being a leader. Nikki, how does the concept of leadership, I mean, have, have you ever had to stop and think about yourself as a leader in your business? Yes, I have. And taking the roles that I have been taught from a young age, being at, let's say, certain schools, I have taken those responsibilities and techniques that I have been taught and I'm now putting it into my own business of integrity and respect and the core values of what my company stands for and the core values as to how I am as a person that I'm going to move it into my company and bringing those values onto children and teaching them those values. At what point in your walk as an entrepreneur, Carmel, did you find that you understood or defined your values and, and how have you filtered those through into your business so that they form part of your consistency, predictability, reliability of the products you produce? That's been an interesting journey. There's been some absolute bucking the system around not having formal processes and using formal tools. I was wrong. Use them from the very beginning. Get a good lawyer get a good accountant, get a good project management tool, get a good time tracker, get a good get them. <laughs> it will make your life so much easier. I think when you start as a, an entrepreneur, you think, oh, this is going to be such fun. We're all going to be driven. We're all going to be motivated. We're all going to do this, and we're going to achieve that goal. It's a bit like herding cats, really, really. No, you have to define the goal. You have to put the steps in place. So I didn't. And it took me about five years of beating my head against the wall to realize this is actually far easier than I'm making it. <laughs> Put the building blocks in place. Yeah. Just conform. So I have a story to share from my walk as an entrepreneur. While I was running a one-man show, it was a business that was really a sideline gig that I, I never really wanted to work or be corporate. And one of my kind of values was lifestyle and freedom. And so I built a business around lifestyle and freedom. But going back to some of the, one of the things you said earlier, the world around and the industry around my business changed. 
and it could no longer survive as a lifestyle business for one person. So it had to start employing people. And I had this thing in my head that I would never employ people because people were unreliable and you couldn't um, deal with people. What I didn't realize was that my fear of employing people was due to my inadequacy as a leader. I didn't want to deal with conflict and I didn't know how to deal with people. So it wasn't the fact that, you know, people were bad. It was the fact that I was inadequate as a leader of people. After I'd been through some leadership training, I went and did an MBA completely by accident, I learned that one could start systematizing a business and the sideline gig of my company began to grow and grow. Now, looking back, we've got a company that that has a number of employees and each of them are so motivated and tied into the vision and what the company does that it's a lesson for young entrepreneurs out there that building the right business and having the right vision from the start shapes the way you train people and move them into your business. And having reliable systems allows you to put each person in their place at the right time so that they can hit the ground running because they've almost got their treadmill moving beneath their feet so you can put them in the right place and they can do the right job. Let's talk about one more topic before we close off, and that's the concept of scalability. We build businesses because we come up with an idea. The idea is to solve some need or deliver some product or service to a customer that we feel passionate about. But at some point, the business starts either growing bigger than us or it's going to be the same forever and it's never going to grow. And we're after this concept of scalability. Can you grow the business bigger than yourself or bigger than an individual can handle? And what are some of the challenges about growing a business to the point where the business can grow and grow and grow without reaching capacity or bottlenecks? In terms of scalability, Karma, what are some of the lessons you'd like to tell young entrepreneurs about, you know, building a business that can grow and grow and grow with no ceiling? That is primarily driven by the entrepreneur, right? But when you put your building blocks down, when you put your foundations down, when you start your processes, don't think to solve today's problem. Think about next week, next year, next 10 years problem. So think bigger than the problem actually is, because if you can solve a much bigger problem than you're currently faced with, server size, processing power, whatever it is, if you can think much bigger than your current problem and you can solve a bigger problem, you can definitely solve your current problem. So you're allowing yourself the wriggle room in terms of being able to grow and not having to deal with growth pains sooner rather than later. And scalability generally will only come from two drivers one is the person doing the selling is selling the product or the concept and that is going to increase revenue which is going to potentially allow the business to employ more people and the second way is i guess through funding through an investor and i think that's quite a frightening place for most entrepreneurs because it's saying i've got to hand some of my baby over to you and are you going to nurture it the way i have But if you want a business to truly grow to something that can work on a global scale, I think one of the biggest challenges or emotional challenges an entrepreneur needs to be able to deal with is to say, I have to let go. If it's going to grow, I have to let go. You said some very interesting things there. One of the things you said was about solving a problem or planning to do things bigger than they are at the moment because you don't want to end up planning to do just enough now and suddenly hitting bottlenecks later. I think most of the time we think about how to do a job, we think about how to do it just enough. Right now. Just enough to get by, and we don't think about tomorrow. So I think it's a really important lesson. Uh, The other one you you talk about is letting go. Let's talk about letting go, because I think it's one of the things that all entrepreneurs are going to say, I'm never going to let my business go, it's me. Then it's going to die, right? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) If you try and do too much, you'll strangle the business quite um, capably. Nikki, let's talk about your business. It's your business. It's your baby. You feel passionate about it. What would you feel about somebody coming in and saying, right, it's wonderful. We like your business. You go off and have a holiday. We're going to take it off and run, take it over and run it without you. I think I would be excited on the new journey that is coming ahead within my business, having myself foundationally and monetary found my place in my company. I started off with very small, basically, whatever I was earning, I was putting it into my equipment. And that is what my first step was. My first step, once I was qualified, was to get the right equipment to start my business. And that is what I put my extra time and effort and money into my equipment first. Before I did any planning of 
finding a client or anything else, I needed to have that correct equipment. And it might have cost me not a lot of money or a lot of money and make no difference. But now I've come to the point where I'm needing more equipment. I'm needing more people to come underneath me. I'm needing more assistance because I cannot handle the amount of work that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And if an investor or someone who is going to come along the way and say, I'm here to help you, I may have to take that opportunity. But for right now, I think for what I'm doing at this very moment, I think I'm doing perfectly fine on my own. I think you've voiced the feelings of a lot of entrepreneurs. I don't want to let go. Yeah, I'm doing, doing perfectly fine on my own. Scalability, does it require working yourself out of a job? I think so. I'm mortified to say I think so. I think entrepreneurs have the, the vision, the dream, the determination to start up. Oftentimes, we're not very process-driven people. We don't pay attention to detail like finance and all of those good things. And when it comes to scalability, if you're going to turn your small business into a global monster, it's probably a good idea to hand it over to somebody who doesn't have the emotional association, someone who looks at the numbers, who looks at the practical process and says, right, if this, then that, go. They say most businesses fail when the requirements of the business exceeds the capability of the manager or entrepreneur. And so it's a matter of recognizing where your borders are. You know, if, if you're a global leader, wonderful, you're never going to be without a job. But if you're used to running a business of this size, then it's in your best interest either to learn how to run a business that's bigger or to take a smaller role in your business and put somebody in charge who does know how to run a business that's bigger. I've been watching my business grow. I started off as a one-man business not too long ago, and within three years, we're now up to 10 people. And I'm watching the business grow, but all the time I'm standing aside thinking, I've got nothing to do here. Because operationally, people are doing the operational parts of the job. And my role has changed completely. In your experience, how have you found dealing with your changing role as businesses, as your business grows? It's frightening. I think you feel like, I would imagine that a mother or a father, when the child leaves home, it's like, oh my gosh, it's gone. What now? (laughs) Uh, I think you've done an amazing job if your business can run without you. Until such time as you either sell it or grow it into something enormous and, and put somebody else at the helm with you, I think you will always have to dip back in at a point in time because there will be legacy stuff that you will know So you will need to step back in and say, okay, this is why, this is how, this is where, this was the step change, these are the consequences, this is where you are now. So, go. I think as an entrepreneur, you've always got to have that bigger vision. When I was 18, I I met a guy who was a student, he he just graduated, so he was a few years older than me. And he had a business and he had this dream of being a millionaire. And he made some big deal and he was a millionaire at the age of 23. I'll never forget, somebody had been speaking to this guy, and he said to them, one of the saddest things in life is when your realizations exceed your dreams. And that sat with me for a long time, until I thought, no, that's wrong. If, if your dreams aren't big enough, and what you've got has suddenly exceeded your dreams, then you're not dreaming big enough. You know, the simple answer to the question is, dream bigger, do more. And so that's where I'm finding myself. Once you've worked yourself out of the job, it doesn't mean that you stop doing anything. It means that you're now free to to think bigger and create that bigger organization. Make mistakes. You have got to make mistakes. Rookie mistakes I don't like much. We've made the mistake more than twice before. It mustn't happen again. But learning, you have to make mistakes. Be brave enough to try something new. Try something different. Let's put that in context. So we're not talking about making monumental mistakes happily and feeling good about it. No, (laughs) definitely not. And I think I can completely agree as to what you are saying because I've had done many mistakes in learning on how to become a yoga instructor or timing of my planning or timing of lessons and timing of being with people and speaking to people. I think those The mistakes that I have done have given me the resources into becoming better and learning from those mistakes. 
And with a person who learns from their mistakes, you can only better yourself. And that is exactly as to how I have progressed within the past couple of years as to how I've progressed as a person, how I've progressed as a director of a company and where my business is going and the future of it because my five-year plan has come into my year two and a half and it's become very real. I had to take a step back the other day and look at myself and I said to myself, this is way bigger than me as a little person and I could not have expected this to come sooner than it has. And I'm excited for the journey that I'm coming within the past next couple of months. But it's also very daunting. It's a huge step and a huge risk that I'm taking. To be honest, I'm very excited in the risk. <laughs> Let's jump in quickly. So, Karma, what advice would you give to Nick on this rapid growth journey of her so that she doesn't make the kinds of mistakes that maybe you can foresee coming? Run the numbers. So instead of running out to hire somebody, really, really run the numbers. What does your day look like? What does your rand value look like? What is the consequence going to be of a person? What are they going to cost you physically in terms of, uh, from a pecuniary point of view, cost you in money? And what are they going to cost you in time for you to train them to bring them to where you want them to be? And what's the benefit of having them there right now? And make the mistake. And don't lie down and cry once you've made the mistake. And if you make a bad hire, fix it quickly. Fix it quickly. Because if you take it with you, it compromises the very thing that you're trying to build. Thank you so much. I completely have taken that all that information in and I'm now going to take that to my drawing board. I would add one more thing. So one of the things that we've done that we stumbled across at Imaginate uh, was the thing called the audition day. So we never hire somebody that we don't know. It's like entering into a marriage contract after half a date. You know, you, you're going to be. A bad idea. It should Very be a bad, bad idea, idea. Yeah, given that most marriages don't work mm -hmm. out. You know, it's not something you step into lightly. So the thing that we've done at, at Imaginate is we hire for skill. So we go through all the CVs and we look on paper to see what somebody's like. Then we bring them in to do the interviews and we kind of develop our shortlist. But then we bring each of the people on our shortlist in to work for us for a day. So it's a one-day gig, they get paid for the day, and we call that their audition day. We give them an example of what they would be doing, we put them in the team they're going to be working with, and that gives us a really good idea about whether they can deliver on the goods. And based on that, we've changed our minds in terms of what we thought was going to be our favorite hire to somebody completely different just because of the fact that we've seen how people perform. Really, really, really interesting little simple tip. The other tip I'd give you is to learn leadership quickly. You're going to find that the people that you hire are not going to pan out the way you thought they would, and you're going to have to make some hard decisions. You know, either reprimand them and bring them on board quickly, or you know, correct action that's not desired, or get rid of them. And we don't like to send people on their way because it's hard. It's very difficult. It's, it's emotional. Really, it really yeah. is tough. But you got to do it, right? Tell us how you feel after you've had to let someone go for being the wrong person or not performing properly. I've had to be 100% practical about it. Absolutely unemotional because if you do, particularly I think as a woman in business and a woman in business in a tech space, which means I get to deal mostly with men, and there really are subliminal differences in the way we handle things. There has been an enormous amount of relief when somebody has exited the business that I've known has not been good for the business. And you can actually feel it in a general office, in the team space. There's a, okay, and mistakes cost. Oh my gosh, they do. They cost the business, but they cost the people too. So if you have somebody, I had a 2IC for a period in, in time a good few years ago. And when I was around, he was 100% supportive. When I physically wasn't in the office, he would, if I'd sent somebody for training that he didn't think they should have gone on, he would attack that person, but not in front of me. Saying like, what have you done this training for? I thought we weren't going to use this language anymore. And then this person is feeling horribly insecure, like, oh my gosh, why did she send me on that training? Does she not want me to be in the business anymore? Because this person says we're not going to be using that language anymore. And it's like, how did this happen? Um, because you don't know exactly where people are challenged and where people are threatened. And as it turned out, the language that the girl was learning was a language he was not proficient in. But as my 2IC, I trusted that he would learn from her and he was not a learning kind of person. And it, it cost us. So looking back, 
Is there anything that you would have done differently in your walk as an entrepreneur? And what would that be? In other words, if you could talk to your 10 years ago self, what lesson would you give that you know you've learned over time that you wished you'd learned earlier? Get the processes in place sooner. Literally, the document, everything, everything that is a daily process, if it can be automated, automate it. Find the systems, use the systems. Put in the hard yards to understand what's available. Make a selection, apply it, just use it. Make it mandatory in the business. Interesting, very interesting indeed. Nikki? I think having your goal and achieving your goal and putting the correct systems in place to achieve that goal and having the correct people underneath you or to support you and guide you are what has helped me become the person that I am today. Well, that was our session on systems in business. As you've heard, there's a a really deep reliance on systems all the way throughout business. And there's different elements and different components to what makes systems work in a business. There's the actual system and operational processes itself. But more important, as we've come to identify through this discussion, it's about the people involved in the business and the, the way that we as the leaders of the business relate to them. A big thanks to our guests for joining us today in the studio. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to another Alan Gray Orbis Foundation podcast. You've been listening to the Alan Gray Orbis Foundation online learning community podcast series covering essential topics for entrepreneurs, including finance, marketing, systems thinking, generational issues and practical skills. Thank you.